about a month ago I was um, serving at St. John's Kitchen and I was cleaning up the coffee area and this coffee area is super busy there's always lots of people that are, are, are utilizing it and it's a constant it's kind of in a constant state of mess all the time so once you clean it you can walk away come back two minutes later clean it again it's that that's the kind of scenario so I clean uh, the area there's a long line of people that are there at the kitchen for uh, lunch and uh, I, I just finished cleaning it I get it all spick and span and this this gentleman says hey, we're out of cream. Can you get some more cream? I said, sure. So I went into the kitchen. I got some cream. I came back. I put the cream down. And he goes, thank you so much. And he, uh, he takes the cream, and he puts his cup down. Bang! And it slops on the side. He grabs the, screen, the cream, and he goes, glug, 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 and it spills all over. And he puts it down, and he grabs the sugar. And, and, you know, he didn't use a spoon, because why would you do that? That would take a long time. So he picked up the sugar container. Pow, pow, pow. And it slopped over top of that. And then he took the spoon again and he's he goes and he's stirring furiously and that sloshing is creating a centrifuge and there's just coffee everywhere and then he picks it up and he plunks the spoon down and he looks at me with a great big smile on his face and he goes thank you so much i said hey you're welcome take care he goes all right and he walks away he's just very happy and so i'm, I'm standing there, i'm looking at this big disaster that he just created and i thought to myself i am this guy i'm him I'm, I'm so unaware of the grace of God in my life that's just constantly cleaning me up, constantly covering my sin, constantly... I mean, I'm, there, there's sin that I'm aware of, and that's the sin that I actually confess. You know, when we confess our sin each week here at Redeemer, I'm not leading you in confession, I'm confessing too. Because God's law requires that we worship Him perfectly, and we love others perfectly, and none of us are doing that. But then yet there's this sin in my heart, sin in my life, sin in your heart, sin in your life that you're just not aware of. Because you've justified it, so it wouldn't occur to you that you sinned. And you go along your day, like that gentleman with his coffee, thanks God for your goodness and your grace, I repented of these eight things. And, you know, the grace of God just comes and cleans up all that slop that you're just completely unaware. You're just completely unaware that it was even sin. This is the goodness of the grace that covers us. And it's because His grace covers us that it renews us and it reforms us. We're going to continue our Ephesians series this morning. We're in chapter 4. I'm going to start reading verses 17 through 32. But before I read this text, I have to give you the context. We can't just jump in and read this. Because if you do jump in and read this, I promise you, you're going to just walk out of here... And you're going you're gonna to feel like, well, i got to just stop doing that, and i got to start doing that, and roll up my sleeves, and sola bootstrapsa. Change it. Change your life. So I've got to remind you of what Paul said before we get to this, the beauty of this reforming uh, grace. You see, he starts out by saying that you were predestined by adoption. That before the foundations of the world, God's grace chased you down. His mercy minus your merit saved you, rescued you. And now because of that, you have been rescued and saved from the stressful life of living as a small, insufficient, incapable God, constantly striving to control people and control circumstances so that you can justify yourself, save yourself, find meaning, find belonging. You have been saved from all of that to the glory of of enjoying God and glorifying God and resting in a God who gives you grace and gives you peace.
for every circumstance, regardless of every circumstance, that transcends every circumstance. This tidal wave of grace has come toward you and has, has saved you. And the, and the reason why this is so powerful is because Paul then unfolds the mystery of the Gospels that God could call sinners righteous, which he does. The, the, the wisdom of the Gospel is reflected in this room right here. There is such a diversity across this room of all of your salvation origin stories that if afterwards we have coffee and you go to somebody and say, how did, how did you come to faith in Christ? How did you end up here at Redeemer worshiping Jesus? What's your story? There are so many diverse stories, so many diverse backgrounds, so many, so many you know, diverse you know, uh, scenarios that you have been saved out of that you showcase the manifold wisdom of God, which is basically God's power on display that says he can save anybody, anytime, anywhere he wants because he's that good, he's that gracious, and he's that powerful. And so his grace goes deeper than ours ever will. The unity of the church is deeper than we would ever make it because we would only be in unity with people that are kind of like us and understand us. But God's unity transcends all of that in the gospel, goes even deeper, and he unites us all together to show his manifold wisdom, that he is a God of great grace and of great power. And so in all of this, we, re we find that God's grace is empowering us now to live to the glory of his name. He says, he starts out this chapter by saying, walk worthy of the calling of which you've been called. In other words, not a, not a divine guilt trip. Hey, do this now. A divine invitation. This is actually who you are now. This is actually who I'm empowering you to be now. You don't do it. You can't do it. He's doing it. He began it. He is doing it. He's continuing to do it. And so as it turns out, Christian faith is not a crutch for weak people. It's a defibrillator for dead people. You don't need a crutch. You don't need to pick me up. That wasn't your problem. Your problem was you were dead. Dead in your sin, incapable of choosing God, incapable of doing what's right, living to the glory of your own name. And then God, in his great grace and mercy, rescued you out of that. Now we come to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17. Now this I say, and I testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardness of their heart. They've become callous and they've given themselves up to sensuality, greed, to practice every kind of impurity. But that's not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and you were taught in him, and the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through sinful and deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief steal no longer, but rather let him do labor, honest work with his own hands, that he may have something to share with anyone who is in need. Let no corrupt talking come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as it's fitting the occasion, that it might give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander 
be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is God's word. Now here, Paul teaches that God's grace is what is going to empower you to put off your old life. God's grace is what's going to empower you to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and in your heart. God's grace is what's going to empower you to put on the new life that's in Christ. This is what Paul gives us. How does this happen? How does this work? What is it that God is doing? How is it that we participate in a gracious way? Not with our justification. We have, there's no participation in that. But how do we participate now in this renewing, sanctifying work that the Spirit is doing? How do we do that? Here's the sermon in a sentence. As our grasp of God's grace continually increases, our appetite for our sin continually decreases. And this is what we're going to expound out of the text today. Now, up until this point, Paul actually prayed two really powerful prayers. We studied them a couple weeks ago. He prays two prayers for you and I, by extension, that we would know the power of God's love toward us and that we would know the, God's power in us. Why is Paul praying these powerful prayers? He's praying it because they can't just grasp grace intellectually. It's when grace gets grasped in the heart that grace not only blows our minds, but it changes our hearts. It changes our taste buds. We start to have a taste for what it is to enjoy and glorify God, and that tastes sweet. But the sin, the old life, the life that we're living, that becomes very bitter. The Spirit is in the work of renewing your taste buds. He's in the, renewing, he's in the business of changing our appetites. There's an expulsive power here that Paul is praying for. Why does Paul pray these prayers? Why, why is this uh, text that we just read this call to say, hey, notice it, put off the old. He doesn't just say put off the old and put, off, put on the new. He says put off the old, then there's this renewing. What's that about? And then he says put on the new. Why does he say this? He says it because the limited power of our will might suppress our sinful desire. But the expulsive power of the Spirit changes what we desire. Our minds can concede that God's law is truth, but only the renewing power of the Spirit makes our hearts actually desire God's truth. And for that, we need grace. The same grace that we celebrate that saved us, that was so scandalous, it's the same grace that's sanctifying us. We need it. There's no baton passing from Ephesians 3 to Ephesians 4. It's not like, okay, I did my part by the Spirit, and now here's the handoff. Now go sanctify yourself. We all know that's a big, massive problem. That was kind of why Paul was blowing his stack in Galatians, right? What are you doing, he says. You started something in the Spirit, now you're going to finish it in the flesh? What the H-E double hockey sticks are you? I'm, at, I'm toning it down. I'm toning it down. You're like, Paul, don't, you're being so, no, I'm toning it down. I'm totally toning it down. Galatians 1, Paul says, if anybody preaches another gospel, they can go to hell. If I preach another gospel, I can go to hell. Paul, don't, you're cussing in church. I'm not. That's Galatians 1. That's what he said. You prefer the old, you know, 17th century English translation. Let him be accursed. Let him be anathema. What do you think anathema means? Let's just break this down. What do you think accursed means? What happens to accursed anathema people when God doesn't rescue them and bless them? What happens when they're damned? Hell. 
So Paul was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's not mess up the beauty of Christ, the beauty of his cross. Let's not make a mockery of his grace and be like, thanks, Jesus, I'll take it from here. That, you know, do it yourself, self-salvation, self-sanctification project. No way. So Paul prays these prayers so that when we get to this text that we just read, where he's like, put some, you've got to put off the old man, and you've got to put on the new man, you've got to renew yourself. This is by the power of the Spirit, which is good news for you. Because if it wasn't by the Spirit, today's sermon would be horrible. You'd all go home incredibly burdened. You'd all go home like, I'm not pulling it off, which you're not. You'd all go home like, I'm, I'm not enough, which we're not. Which is why Christ is our holiness. And the more we rest in that, the more we're blown away by His grace. The increase of the love of our Savior increases. Our hatred for our sin, it increases too. And, and our desire for our sin decreases. And it melts away. And so this is why Paul says this to us. So Ephesians chapter 1 through 3 sounds like chains falling off. Prison doors swinging open. So that chapters 4 through 6 sound like, now that you're free, here's what that freedom actually looks like. You're going to actually start living this way, not that way. You're going to start doing these things, not these things. Why would Paul say, you're going to do these things, not these? Because the chains fell off. Because the prison doors swung open. That's not who you are anymore. That's not who I am anymore. We still struggle with our sin. We still actually give in and, and fail and sin. All of us. Very much in need of his grace every day. You know? Yet, he does this beautiful sanctifying work. So let's look at these three things here. How does God's grace empower us to put off the old life? How does God's grace renew us in our hearts and our minds? And how do we put on the new life? Well, in terms of putting off the old life, in verse 17, he uses pretty strong language. He says, you must not walk this way. Why, why he's so strong? You must not. It's because he really cares about freedom of the church. He's like, you must not go back to that. Don't put the chains back on. Don't, don't go back in the cell and shut the cell, shut the cell door with yourself inside. Don't go back there. This is what he's appealing for. Verse 18, he starts talking about you know, why this is. He says the Gentiles, for those of you that are new to the Bible or you're new here, you say, what's this Gentiles? It's anybody who wasn't, at the time, who wasn't a Jew, God's chosen people. Everybody outside that was a Gentile, which is you and me. And so he's saying, basically, before Christ did this beautiful work, you're stuck in this way of thinking. Not that there's no God, but that you're God. So now you're the determiner of truth, you're the determiner of what's real, and so you're living your whole life out of basically being your own God, which is an exhaustive place to be. Because now if you're your own God, you have to control everything. And of course, none of us can control everything, and so that's depressing. And so he invites us out of that exhaustion into the liberation of Christ. And so this is why he says, don't be like the Gentiles. They're all locked into this worldview where, you know, there is a God and it's them. It's not Christ. And so they're living, and so then he starts describing the life that they're living. In other words, since Genesis, we've got this switch labeled worship in our hearts that's been flipped to the on position since we were born. So we're all worshiping something. The question, of course, is what it is we're worshiping. Paul's saying, we're going to come out of that and put some old things off. So then in verse 20, he says, he describes this, you know, the, the sensuality and the greed and the sin. And then he says, that's not how you learned Christ. It's an interesting phrase. He says Christ. He doesn't say Jesus. He talks about Jesus later. But he says Christ. Yeah, that's not how you learned Christ. In other words, the office of Christ. So what Paul is saying here is, you can't say, yes, Jesus is my Lord, but, I mean, my Savior, but no, he's not going to be my Lord. Oh, yeah, I love the great, this talk of grace that saved me. But don't bother me with this grace that uh, might actually reform me. I don't want to hear about that. And Paul's like, that's not how you learned Christ. In other words, the office of like, 
if he's Lord, that means I have to bend my knee. That means I can't just be my own God. And so he's like, I've got to help you put this stuff off. So you've got to realize if you don't bow your knee to Christ, you are going to bow your knee to something, and it's going to take you back to prison. You know, and it's going to be bondage. So this is kind of how he's describing this. And, he, and it's keeping us from rebuilding that idolatrous wall around our heart labeled me first. And if you notice all the sin in the passage that we read, at the root of all of it, at the root of all those sins, that's not an exhaustive list. So Paul's not like, and I got to chapter 4, and I'm going to write down every conceivable thing they shouldn't do. That's not what he's doing. When you look at that list of sins, the crux of all of them is, I'm going to do something that benefits me at your expense. Every one of those. But what have we been called to? We've been called to love, which is the opposite, which is to live my life in a way that benefits you at my expense. So Paul here in verse 20 is like, that's not how you learned Christ. We've got to break down that idolatrous wall that says me first so that I can actually love people. Because left to my own self, I'm not going to. I'm going to be looking out for number one. I will. I do, more often than I, uh, than I care to admit. I do. And so this is, this is what, what he gives us. And so, so he says, how do we live free of this? We've got to put off this stuff. But of course, it's not us that's doing the putting off. It's the Spirit that saved us as we marvel in Christ, that the Spirit begins to work in our hearts and convict us of our sin, and it's the Spirit's work that, causes, that empowers us to actually put it on, so that we're actually free. And as the Spirit does this beautiful work, this freedom enables us to affirm our, affirm our culture whenever we can, and challenge our culture when we must, because we're free. I'm, I'm, but if we're not free, and grace hasn't freed us, then we can't affirm the culture wherever we can. We have to hide from the culture. Quick, isolate ourselves. You know, stay away from the big bad city. Stay away from the big bad schools. Stay away from the big bad everything. Just let's just live in this little Christian community and isolate it. That's not, what, that's not even a picture of the life Jesus lived. Isolation. No. But when we're free from our, putting off our old self, we're now free now to affirm the culture whenever we can. But challenge it when we must because we're not bowing to the culture because we're free because in christ there's this freedom we've put off these old things so putting off the old things doesn't mean and now we run away from the city putting off the old things means we enjoy and we celebrate uh, the life of grace that we live in the city so this is what paul encourages us to do an example of this would be that when i was at saint john's i sat down with one of the ladies that runs the kitchen and she says to me so you're a pastor yeah what church are you from kw redeemer and right away she goes, so how do you feel about homosexuals? Would they be welcome in your church? I said, yes. Well, what do you think about homosexuals? I said, we respect and love and, and give grace to everybody of every single sexual orientation. I said, that's our posture, is one of love. I said, and our position on marriage is the historical scriptural view, which is that it's one man and one woman that covenant in marriage together. And she says to me, well, how is, it that, how is it possible that you can, you know, love and accept? And, because, and she says, well, I'm a lesbian. Can I come to your church? I said, absolutely, you can come to my church. I said, we're not right before God because of our sexual orientation. We're right before God because either we're fully in Christ and have placed our, our trust in him or not. I said, so, I said, um, I'm not going to abandon the historical scriptural view that marriage is one man and one woman in a covenant. Um, that's my position. But our posture is one of love. Um, that everybody needs to hear the gospel. I'm not going to abandon my Christian conviction in order to love you. I can love you and maintain my conviction. In fact, being a loving church doesn't mean that we embrace the culture and become the culture. 
But it also doesn't mean we reject the culture. It means that we are able to love everybody outside of this community who doesn't share the convictions of this community without abandoning our conviction. Because love is infinitely more powerful than tolerance. So when Paul is saying to Ephesus, you've got to put all this stuff off, that doesn't result in, well, then that means I guess I'm just going to be irrelevant to the city. No, it means I can even more deeply love my city because I'm not going to bow to my city. So I can maintain my Christian conviction, but I can put off the sin and I can love those that don't share my conviction. And so she says, okay. And so, you know, for the rest of the day, we work together in a beautiful work in the city, feeding the homeless, and we don't share each other's position and we disagree with each other, but that's not the point. I don't need to abandon my view to embrace hers because she certainly wasn't going to abandon her view to embrace mine. But can we both feed the poor in the city, which is a good and a godly thing? Yes. And so we did. Paul says we've we got to put off this stuff, but it's by the Spirit. Now, there's, there's three responses to this, what I'm saying, putting off the old man. There's a rebellious response, which says, don't talk to me about change. Don't talk to me about putting off my old man. God's grace is like peanut butter. You just slap it all over everything, and I don't have to change, and that's just, it's ridiculous. It's crazy. No, that's, that's not what the scriptures teach. In 1539, Luther wrote a treatise called of Churches and Councils. It's amazing reading, for those of you that are interested in that. It's amazing, because Luther, Luther was kind of like, ah, and I love that. But anyways, he, um, this is what he says. He says, you can't grant... The prem you can't grant the premise of grace and then deny the conclusion of grace. You can't grant the premise that grace saves you and then deny the conclusion that that grace is going to do something in you. That doesn't make sense. If you grant the premise that you've been saved by grace, you're also granting the conclusion that Christ is Lord and he's going to actually begin a beautiful work by that same grace. Right? So the rebellious response is, don't talk to me about reform. The religious response is, I'm not that bad. Paul, I hear you up here talking about sin, but I've been, in the, I've been in the church for a very long time. I have the catechism memorized, I have the Ten Commandments memorized, and I'm a very religious person, and I'm, and I'm really not as bad as you're saying. I'm actually quite sanctified, and I'm offended you're talking to me this way. Well, I have news for you. The standard of God's law is Christ, and none of us are, are, are walking according to that standard, which means... We're not under the condemnation of the law, and we can actually enjoy God's law as a guide because Christ was the one that fulfilled it. But the religious response is, I'm not that bad. I don't believe my own villainy. You know, it, we have the same, when we get religious and self-righteous, we become like the garden. God says, Adam, where are you? Notice the question, not what did you do? Where are you? Because he's coming again in grace. Right, get this right from the but what does Adam say? Ah, what? It wasn't me, it was Eve. What does Eve say? Ah, it wasn't me, it was the serpent. What's going on? I'm not that sick. I don't believe my own villainy. It was her. I don't believe my own villainy. It was him. So when we get self-righteous, we don't believe our own villainy. And so when there's opportunities for us to repent, oh God, and love our neighbor, which is the, the form that repentance ends up taking and glorifying God, loving others, we don't believe our own villainy. So we go on in, and we carry on in sin. But he said, Paul says, put off the old man. Believe the villainy. Rest in the grace of Christ so that you can actually live to the glory, which is actually true freedom. And that's why Paul, when he gives the long list, it's this long list, and he calls them deceitful desires. Look at the list again. It's, it's, we can live a life of truth or a life of lies. We can, we can have sinful anger, which controls us in bitterness, or righteous anger by being angry at what God's angry at. We can live a life of stealing or a life of hard work. We can live a life of corrupt talking or encouraging talking. We can live a life of bitterness or a life of compassion. He gives us this list. He gives us these choices. But then he calls all of those 
the sinful side, he calls them deceitful desires. In other words, they're promising what they're not delivering. In other words, it's that bondage, right? You give in to the sin, and the reason you and I are giving into it is because in that moment, we're believing this thing is going to benefit me. And Paul calls it deceitful because it's going to end up in that, in that bondage. So we've got to put off this old life. But then he says in verse 23, to be renewed. So how does God's grace, if God's grace is empowering us to put off the old life, which Paul knows from experience, which is why he's saying what he's saying, how does God's grace empower us to renew? Because he says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Right? He didn't say, go off and renew yourself, which would be a different set of grammar altogether. He says, be renewed. In other words, something's going to be done to you. The Spirit is doing this renewing. How does this work? Well, the renewing of the mind comes by meditation. And Paul knows this, and this is how, how uh, throughout history the church would learn God's law. It was through meditation, memorization, me- meditation, thinking on it. Now, Eastern meditation, transcendental meditation, is very much about emptying yourself and emptying your thoughts. But that's not scriptural meditation. Scriptural meditation is not emptying yourself, it's filling yourself. It's not emptying your mind, it's filling your mind. It's not, oh, I'm going to sit down and be quiet and meditate, and I'm going to just empty myself and listen to, you know, the Spirit speak to... You're just going to come up with all kinds of wild and zany things that are in your own heart. That's not scriptural meditation. It is not emptying yourself, it's filling yourself. With what? With God's law. The, The clearest picture of this is actually in Psalm 1, where... The book of Psalms is a prayer book. The very first psalm um, helps you get, gets you ready for prayer. And the first psalm is all about meditation. It gives a picture of this tree planted by water, bearing fruit, roots going deep. Right? What's that a picture of? And, and Paul says that Dave, David writes, Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day and night. So David's like, I'm meditating on your law. So he's not emptying himself of all his thoughts and trying to hear what God is saying. He's like, I'm going to meditate on what you have given me. I'm going to mull it over, mull it over. What does this say? How is this saying this to me? So that there's a renewal that can take place. And that's the picture of uh, meditation from Psalm 1. That's what Israel always did. That's how they always meditated. And that's what what Paul is inviting Ephesus to do. Imagine, so let's just think about this now. Ancient Greece, Ephesus. These people just came out of Artemis cults. These people were worshipping these other other, uh, Greek gods. And if Paul was to say to them, you know, be renewed by the, you know, the spirit of your minds, and so they're like, okay, well, then we must meditate. If those, if Ephesus doesn't sit down and be like, okay, give me God's law so I can meditate on it, so it can reshape the way I'm thinking, they're just going to sit down and they're going to just run that stuff through their Artemis filter, right? If you and I sit down and say, okay, I'm going to meditate, but I'm not going to use God's word, I'm not going to read God's word, I'm just going to meditate, I can't have my mind renewed because I'm just left to my own thoughts and my own ideas, this subjective idea of, I think the Spirit is telling me to buy the blue one, not the red one. What? How do you, where is this? No, you can't. You, the beauty of meditation and the beauty of scriptural prayer is that prayer is a response, which means God is already talking, which means you're responding to something that is said. So when Paul says to Ephesus, put off this old stuff, renew, in order to renew, we've got to dial into what God said. And the way to dial into what God said is not to quiet ourselves and close the door and not have what God said in front of us and try and find out what God said. The beauty of this is that like you learned to speak English because as a little baby you had no language, but a language was spoken to you, and then you learned the language because the language was given to you, that's God's word. 
See, we don't, read, we don't read the Bible because it makes us better Christians, because it doesn't. We don't read God's Word because we get gold stars in heaven, because if you read the, the Bible more than the person next to you, you get a bigger mansion. That's ridiculous. We read God's Word because it's bread. It's what feeds us. It's what enables us to be wowed and amazed by His grace so that it begins to reform our minds. And this is why we go to God's Word. This is why. So when Paul says, put off this old stuff, renew... They're going to tell you what the first church was all doing. Okay, well, how do we renew? Get it in front of me so I can begin to meditate. The word meditate, the Bible uses, means mutter. So what are you muttering? God's word. You've got to mutter it. You've got to get it over. What is the saying to me? How, God, how do you help me, God? It's all by the Spirit. It's all by grace. It's not you reforming your minds. You can't do that. It's by grace. It's by the power of his law. The beauty of his... The, the reason why his law is beautiful, David says, in my delight, is because he's got a revelation that he can't keep it, that there's a Savior that's keeping it for him. And so this is what we, this is what we find. And Paul says there's this renewal, and this is what the, the church would have done and would have thought, which concludes then in if we're putting off things by the Spirit and we're being, having our hearts renewed by the Spirit, and how do we then put on new things? How does God's grace empower our new life by the Spirit? Look in verse 24. You'll notice it says, put on the new self. And then look at the phrases that he used. Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the good news for you, church. The sermon is not put off your old man, renew yourself so that you can get out there and be something else. The sermon is put off the old man, Renew your mind, because this is who you actually are now. This is who God has created you and made you in His holiness. It's not do in order to be. It's be according to who you are, who you actually are in Christ. He began the work. He is completing the work. He's doing the work. It's all by His grace. And so we now allow His Word to reform the way that we think. Because that, that list of sin, if you go back down to that list of sin, the reason why we commit those sins, those patterns that are running like autopilot underneath us that cause us to do those things, those are the things that are only reformed as our, as our understanding of God's grace begins to melt our heart and give us a new appetite. I've, I've shared this with you before. I have friends in my life that talk to Susan and I about our marriage and often check in, how are you guys doing? How, you know, and I'm like, I'm still in this crazy, ridiculous 20-year-old pattern of selfishness and, you know, sometimes I exasperate them because they're just like, there's nothing else for us to tell you. And it's true. There isn't anything else for them to tell because I'm like, I, I'm hearing what you're saying. The problem is I've got this pattern of sin that says me first. And so the, 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 the graciousness of that friendship and of that relationship is of them pointing to that sin so that I can go back to a place of like, oh, God, would you do the work in my heart that only you can do? So that I can live a life of love towards my wife, not a life of selfishness toward my life, my, my wife. It's this ongoing desperation for God's grace. It's by the grace and the power of the Spirit. And so the good news is that I'm not indifferent to my sin. Now, who cares? Susan, get over it. This is who I am. Jesus loves me. You should love me too. Just get over it. That I hate that I sin, that I'm selfish. But the, de the desperation of needing God's grace to reform my heart like you need, you need him to reform yours. It's something that Paul's inviting us into and something that the scripture says that we can put on something new. That I'm not a slave to my sin. Imagine how exasperating it would be for my wife if I just said to her, I'm saved by grace, honey, but I am a slave to my sin. This is just who I'm always going to be. 
it'd be like, oh boy, well, I'm committed to you in a covenant of marriage, so I suppose I love you, but that's horrible. Right? The gospel, if I say, if I say God's grace saved me, but God's grace is not sufficient to reform me, then I don't have a gospel. All I'm saying is I'm still a slave. But if I, and if I say, well, God's grace saved me, now I have to change me, I also don't have a gospel. Because now I'm going to be an exasperated Christian, constantly living my life by comparison, saying, well, I'm better than you, so... But rather, the gospel invites us into this compassion and this repentance to say, oh God, would you by your grace enable me to put on this new man? And so we close with this beautiful and scandalous announcement that Paul is actually inviting us in verse... Uh, 32, he says, be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving just as Christ forgave you, which is his gospel logic. It's the great because, therefore, of the gospel. It's the great because of what Christ did, therefore I'm free now to live this way. Because of what Christ, Christ did, therefore I'm free to do this way. Because of what Christ did, therefore my adoption papers aren't being held over a shredder. Your struggle with chapter 4 doesn't erase and shred the promises of chapters 1 through 3. That's the assurance of the believer. Your performance in chapter 4, your ability to say, praise to the glory of God, this was a beautiful week, or, oh God, forgive me a sinner, this was a horrible week, is neither gaining nor keeping the promises of 1 to 3. You're saved by Christ's work, not yours. And because of that, you're now free to live according to who you are in Christ now, which is to the glory of his name in the freedom of this gospel. Our grasp of God's grace continually increases and our appetite for our sin continually decreases. And I'll close with this line from this hymn by William Cowper, who sums up this passage, I think, beautifully with his old hymn, and he says this, To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice transforms a slave into a child and duty into choice. Let's pray.